Good morning from Tech Central and really welcome to our Kubernetes webinar brought to you today by Sousa and LSD. Thank you all for joining us for today's session as we really delve deeper into the world of containerization. I'm now going to hand over to Daniel, who's our host and moderator for today's session. Thanks so much, Kerry. I'm so excited for today's discussion. I did a Google search, not a very scientific one, on containerization, and it came back with 4,700,000 hits. And then when I put containerization as a development strategy, 3.6 million hits on the broadest level. And containerization has now moved from something that was spoken about at geek conventions to mainstream development. About 85% of organizations are going to have some form of containerization in production. But I think the risks are that we could be creating another sprawl of technology and that could adversely affect the ideals of Agile, which is rapid development, which is Agile and changing with the business. And this could slow us down unless we approach it in the right way. And that's why today with Sousa, we've invited LSD to come through and Neil and Julian, who I'll introduce now, come from an organization called LSD. If you are an open source fundy, you would know them. Plus, I've got the coolest name out there. But talking around cloud native, what the journey is and how we can get there and that it is the realm of us who come from a normal background. So let me start by introducing Julian and Neil, and then I'll get on to Peter. Julian is a solutioner at LSD, certified Kubernetes admin, and an app dev with the Cloud Native Forum. He's also a really fun guy to have around and enjoys mellow music. Neil is the CTO of LSD. He's also an app dev on the Cloud Native Forum and is also an architect from an open source perspective. We've got Peter, it's first time on one of our webinars, Peter Dalziel from the sunny shores of the UK where they've had their weekend of summer and uh, he and I are on opposite spectrums when it comes to football support, but Peter is also on my side when it comes to partnerships and partnership director. He is looking after partnerships and ensuring that his partners are the most equipped around. I read something on Neil's paperwork from LSD, which was a quote from Kevin Cruz, which is, life is about making an impact, not making an income. And that leads us into why open source is so important today. And I want to pose that to you, Julian, because you've got such a good smile on your face this morning. Why do you think the time is now that open source should be at the forefront of someone's strategy when going forward? I think it's ironic that Neil had that quote and he works in an industry which is all about open software and I, you know, kind of non-commercial enterprise software. Yeah, I think it's over the last few years kind of reached a tipping point now where historically a lot of enterprises were kind of risk averse when it came to testing the waters with open source software, no support contracts, no vendors. And we've definitely seen that change and change quite rapidly, you know, especially over the last five to 10 years. And I think a lot of that is, you know, if you think about the kids of today, if you're studying software dev, it's a hell of a lot easier to, you know, kick the tires on Python than, you know, back in my day, we had Orland Boulder and it was all proprietary and you had to kind of 
go and get a student license to get hold of these types of things. It's made the accessibility barrier quite a lot lower. And it's also allowed for rapid prototype. So if you're in an app dev team and you need to add a feature, it's a lot easier now to, you know, pull down an open source library, test it, establish whether it's viable. And then once you've kind of gone through the motions of that, potentially go and seek that support afterwards to say, actually, we validated it. There's business value there. It's stable and we can actually leverage it. Let's go and now find a vendor that can support us with it because, you know, we don't want to own it necessarily, but we do want to leverage it. So we're not waiting those months of mystery where you don't see the fruit of your work. We can actually get it quite quickly and then we can see the impact it's having in the business. Does that lead to open everything as a mantra for you, Neil? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been doing this for such a long time now and we honestly believe in this idea of open everything. And I think it's kind of this cool that there's actually an open source element in terms of business and IT. I never thought I'd be so lucky to actually be able to do something that I actually believe in. And what this allows us to do, and I was very surprised at the kind of uptake that open source has taken because the philosophy of it has actually been the thing that makes it go. And what I mean by that is, yes, the software is free, you don't have to pay for it, but people are now seeing, oh, it's not only free, it's innovation. Oh, it's allowing anybody in the world to actually access it. It's allowing people anywhere in the world to use the software and to actually build their ideas. And the more I look at this, the more I look about the philosophy of open, I'm like, we should apply this to everything because the good that it's brought into the world in terms of IT alone is immense. And this is just enforcing my idea of open everything is a great philosophy. At LSD, we really live that. And I know it's very difficult for other businesses. We're we're small, we're a bit unique, I would say, compared to everybody else. But the benefits that it has given us, we would love to share with everybody. And this is a big thing of what we do. You know, we, we are a value-focused company. Yes, we make money, but our goal is to actually improve your life. Our goal is to make your world better. And in our world, that is being more open. Mm. I think for our attendees, just the fact that we've got Neil and Julian here with Peter, please make use of the QA function because what they want to do is strip away the unknowns from an open source perspective. And especially when we start talking about Kubernetes, containerization, Rancher, and how you hold it together, there's a lot of jargon that's been used over the last couple of months and years. And in two sessions, I feel so much more comfortable because of the journey that you've taken me on on this LSD trip. We're going to be talking around that as well. I think that the democratization of this IP is something that I'm really interested in. And Peter, that's a core foundation from a SUSE perspective. Where do we go to when we're talking around democratization of solutions across corporate enterprises? What does that mean for you in English? I think it's it goes back to something that Julian said about tipping points and the openness. And it's that the web isn't allowing us to share things. And I was deal-wigging on an IDC presentation yesterday. And they said at the moment, 10%, it's the move to web that's doing this because it's, it's basically, it's allowing connectivity that, you know, you go back 20 years, you could only dream of. And they were saying, an IDC on this session yesterday, it was a big data London event. And they said that today, we're at 10% of apps being cloud native. In four years, four years, we'll be at 70%. So people are 
taking this opportunity, this move to the web, which, by the way, I think the COVID, the worldwide nature of COVID has driven as well to actually go, actually, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do it now. But let's make sure we do it with open technologies that don't lock us in. Mm. Again, hand on heart, I did used to work for Microsoft. And sometimes in the past, we may have done things where we locked you in or in my old life. So, but you can't really do that anymore. The world's changed. Okay, that leads me on to what does it mean for us as people? Manny's asked us a question, which is how does an open source business model work and how could the business be profitable? It's quite an interesting question to ask. At the root of it, I think, is one of the things that Julian and Neil hold to their hearts, which is a human-centric development platform. Do you want to dive into what does human-centric mean for you, Neil or Julian? And then we can answer Manny's question, which is, how do we make money off this stuff? So LSD is an open source business and we make money. I don't know how, but we do. <laughs> and our focus is on the people. And I think this is the important part is we work on software that is completely free. And we implement solutions with software which is completely free. There's nothing stopping another company doing exactly what LSD is doing. What's stopping them is that they don't have the people that we have. And it's the people that makes us different. And I say this a lot. A company isn't the name or the building, it's the people. And this gets into things of culture and that kind of stuff. Mm. But for us, we are very people-centric. Like we think about, and I'm part of what we call the mission circle in LSD, where we decide you know, how should we direct the company. And it's very, very people-focused in terms of how will this make a person's life better? Because we believe if a person is at his best in LSD, we will get the best out of LSD. Like we will almost reap the rewards of this. And we do this because... and. Well, the people that we hire are also very technical people. These are people that love open source. They're also in it because they believe in it. And we've actually, in a way, we reaped the benefits of this, even though this wasn't what we were aiming for. When we started LSD, it was very, very technical. It was, can I put in a mail server? Can I move you from Microsoft to Zimbra? Because it was cheaper, for example. Mm. But now that we've kind of been doing this for such a long time, our vision and our approach has changed a lot because... The software battle, in my mind, is really won. All software will be open source. That's the way it's going. And now it's like, well, now we need to focus on the people. How do we actually make the people who work at LSD and I suppose in the world of open source make their lives better? Because if their lives are better, your company will be better. And this human-centric development going hand-in-hand with democratized solutions is asking for more of your development team, but more of your project team. Is that why you came around with this guided journey, Julian, on the LSD trip in order to make it easier for us who don't come from, and I don't want to geek out, but don't come from this hardcore tech background that's got a a SUSE tattoo and open source in everything. You know, is this where you went and you wanted to be gentle on us and take us on this journey? And how does it end at containerization being just such an ingredient into this? I guess when we come to the human-centric nature of things, or even just to talk about commercialization in the open source realm, you know, I think it's a misnomer. We're definitely not saying all software should be free. I think that, you know, developers and organizations that contribute and form communities around, you know, open source projects should definitely be rewarded and compensated. And I think 
there's a lot of models out there. And I think the one we're seeing emerge as kind of almost the forerunner now, you know, there's what we call open core, where you've got the core functionality, which is open source and freely available. And then kind of enterprise functionality that gets built out around that and commercialized. And I think one of the things that really drew us in a big way to Rancher is, so kind of just answering that first question, yeah. uh, is that there is future parity across both open source supported, you know, commercialized version. You can run it on your laptop, you can run it in your data center, you can run it in public cloud. And when you need that support, when you need that guidance per se, as an enterprise, most importantly, it's there and available and you do not need to shift technology or make any mm. significant substantial changes to what you've really built. You just turn it on. Mm. And I think model that's really starting to, we see a lot of adoption, a lot of open source companies that are kind of moving away from the open core model because it does, mm. you know, cause a little bit of a little bit more technical debt. And then I think, you know, linking that into the LSE trip ecosystem, you know, kind of cloud native acceleration is that there isn't really a prescriptive pattern. There's no RFP that you can go and look up and say, hey, this if I do this and implement that and we'll be cloud native. And if I write my apps in this specific way, we're going to be cloud native by X. So, you know, the ideation there around the trip is to make it prescriptive. We've been doing it for the last six, seven years now. And we've kind of gone through you know, the motions and, and the struggles and have identified a lot of the pain points and, the idea is we can accelerate our customers on their journey. We can give them that subject matter expertise. We can put platforms, operationalize them and architect them in a way that allows them to put the accelerator down and really push themselves forward. And then, yeah, you know, leveraging technologies like Rancher that really lower the barrier to entry for things like Kubernetes. Kubernetes is a complicated ecosystem of APIs and schedulers and all sorts of things. And using technologies like Rancher that are kind of embedded in, you know, the LST chip as almost foundational technologies allow us to go a lot faster, but also lower the barrier attention for our customers who need to get up and running and up to speed on complicated tech like Kubernetes. That's an excellent summation because my next question, Peter, comes from Priyan Naika. His question verbatim is, we're generally concerned with the security concerns around open source. What are some of the strategies to mitigate this? And, you know, I think that we were just touching on that, but I'd love to get your opinion on that. So uh, it is a, it's a very valid point. And I think just going back again to something that Julian said, and Neil touched on, that open source is moving that way. Again, a stat that I picked up earlier this week, 20 or 25% of all workloads in Azure, as in Microsoft, are open source, Okay. So this, the momentum is all this way. And I think, yes, there is security concerns or, you know, there are malicious people on this planet. But that is, again, where organizations like the CNCF, which unless you're a Cloud Native Compute Foundation, and there is the rigor and the structure around that. And I know from our internal development processes, you know, that's one of the things that you're getting by buying into these very well-trodden and well-ridden paths is that the, you know, we have been through some very rigorous processes that allow a wider field of alpha and beta testing than you could ever have in a commercial model because there's more people sort of testing the software. How many developers do you have at the moment around the world? I mean, offhand, that are using... It's not Susan. a massive number. It's not a huge number. You'd be surprised because you're working with the community as well. So it's, okay. I, I know when we were ranchers, so just for a, a, sorry, a tiny history lesson... So we were acquired by SUSE in December of last year. And before that, I think we had 
40, maybe 50 developers. Was I'm not even sure if it was that many. So it's wow. quite a small team, but they were. You've got some really, really clever people sort of driving the business forward. So it's. Mm. But then you've got beyond that is there's almost sort of like the that mushroom that then goes out to the community and you have mm. you know, everybody contributing beyond that as well, Daniel. Okay, I don't know if we've finished the security concerns properly what the question was asked but I'm going to come back to it I want to ask Neil is it a a massively different approach when using a cloud native tool set do containers really make that big a difference to the world of uh, traditional I'm thinking bank manufacturing thinking traditional business areas airliners is containerization all that it's hyped to be and how big is the lockstep from traditional approaches I think it is a very big change, and I think it is a big thing. And for LSD, we have gone all in on containers. We really believe it's going to be the foundation of how things are done in the future. And it's difficult to describe because you ask these questions of like, well, what's the benefit? What does it do? You know, I understand where a business person comes from. Like, how is this different to me? And what it does, it has tackled a lot of fundamental problems in a very unique way, which allows us to think differently. It allows people portability and speed. It gives you the ability to move between clouds, to stay in data center. It takes away a lot of administration headaches with things like self-healing. It takes away a lot of this lifecycle development where the old classic tale of, oh, it worked in dev, why isn't it working on production? It takes care of a lot of these things. And in IT, There's a lot of resistance everywhere, which requires things like change management and various teams to step in. And containers actually circumvent a lot of these problems. And I think as well, to answer the earlier question is that, is it a big change? It is a big change. And I take it for granted that I've been doing this for such a long time that when I talk about containers and Kubernetes and software-defined networks and persistent storage and API calls, I take it for granted that people in a legacy-based system or a traditional system don't grasp a lot of these concepts because they're still doing things the way they've been doing it 10 years ago. So this idea of you have to change everything can be very scary. And again, this is where LSD actually exists and why we have a business model is that we take that fear away. And you mentioned it earlier, this idea of a journey. It is a journey. This isn't a, I'll install Kubernetes and life is better. It is a journey. And one of the analogies that LSD always uses is it's the equivalent of climbing up Mount Everest. It yeah. is a very, very daunting task, but it is done in phases. You go to base camp, then you go to the next one, and you, and you slowly go there. And this is why we exist. We are actually your Sherpas to help you on this journey. But yes, it's big and it's scary. I really like that, which comes back to the human element of how you manage them. And in that question of how do you make open source a viable business prospect, Well, guys, I think you've got the answer there. There is an opportunity for the Sherpas to join you in the journey. They're going to get paid for that. That's part of the value transaction. Just adding on to something Neil said about why we think containers is going to be enormous and we're describing it as the next wave of virtualization. For me, I think it's going to happen for two reasons. Firstly, because containers are, you can create a greater density per server on containers than you can on virtual machines. So there's an economic element there. The other piece is that, and again, it's something Neil said, it's the agility. And if one thing that organizations want at the moment, given the massive changes in the world, it's agility. 
a, a really lousy analogy to use here, and it holds to a certain degree, but I would say imagine that you've got to vacuum your house. Mm. And in the old virtualization world, you've got an old plug-in vacuum. And you plug it in, you're hoovering away, and then when you're done with that room, you've got to go to the next room. So you go over to the wall, you unplug it. When you go to the next room, you find out it's got a different plug. So it might have an American plug or a European socket, and so you have to change the plug. And it's very, you know, it's very cumbersome to move things around. With containers, you have the latest Wizzy Dyson that is cordless and it has unlimited battery before anybody sort of picks up on that limitation as well. And you can go from room to room, you can move it around, go to your heart's content and it's port- that portability. But that agility and that ability to move things around, it almost goes back to something we said at the start, that people want that openness and that flexibility, and particularly at this moment in time, because it's so strange. I want to move straight back to you, Peter. Is the mm-hmm. ultimate goal open everything? And is that reasonable? I mean, is that wow. practical? Oh, that is a question. Cloud Native Compute Foundation is an organization, I think, of around 600 organizations. And if you were, you could go and join the Cloud Native Compute Foundation if you want and do all the networking and the sort of joining various different standards groups and all that sort of things. And you can, you can do all that yourself. So it is open from that point of view. But I think what will happen over time, I think hyperscalers are with us for the foreseeable because they're great at certain things. Do I think that certain people will want to rein back that openness? Yeah, I do. Okay. But I think what we should try and do is keep it as open as possible, but always be aware that we need to make it, you know, it will always need clever people like Neil and Julian to make this real. Okay. So how do we keep control of it that we don't get the sprawl? We've got one area, which is a guided journey by Neil and Julian. We've got all of these containers that are out there doing stuff. We've got Sumit Sira Mashoko, who's asked us a question. How secure is it to carry transactions, carry and store sensitive data like biometrics for a whole country, ID documents, passports, and that sort of thing? How do we keep a handle on it in a practical way from an organizational perspective, Peter? I'd answer that by saying that one of our biggest customers is the U.S. Department of Defense. And they've got various things running around in the Middle East and um, other parts of the world I probably shouldn't know about using our stuff to do it. And it's as secure as, as its weakest link, isn't it? I mean, Neil and Julian can probably give you more practical examples, but the security is no less inherently secure than a proprietary system. There's no... I think I'm, I'm over such. the security. It's oh, just okay, sorry. all of this development that's going on. How do we keep mm-hmm. a handle on it? If Julian can build containers and linking and Neil can and Daniel can and Peter can, where do we rein it in? Is there any semblance of control or yeah, is it that, just that, a sorry, free thank you for Thank you for putting me back on the straight line there, Daniel. So, yes, that is part of what we say, what our sort of mantra around Rancher is, is that we don't make Kubernetes easy because, as the gents have said, it's quite a complex technology. We make it easier and simpler for you to consume it because we do provide those guidelines within that cloud native compute foundation. So we're not saying that you rigidly have to do it this way. It's not like a platform as a service type offering. We make sure that your solution is fit for purpose while keeping you on that sort of railroad, but it's a broad railroad that you can go off to, you know, you can go to Piccadilly or you can go to Waterloo, but you're still on the train tracks. And so without that, it would become a little bit wild west and, 
it would lead to the sprawl. So it, okay. if you think of what we do, it's making it easier and simpler and by that nature, faster to deploy. Julian, one of the things that runs through all of your content is an element not of lackadaisical, of fun, of that it's coming to work is a great thing. Working with Suzanne Rancher is a great thing. Why is this more fun than a traditional life cycle? Why is this out of the norm and why are people banging on the door to get on this bandwagon? Speaking personally and subjectively, and I suppose as a representative of LSD, I'll speak for <laughs> the LSDs out there. But you know, we are, I guess, technologists at heart. We are a primarily engineering-focused company. So, in that sense, it's fun for us because engineering and getting our hands on the latest, weirdest tech out there is, by its very nature, fun. Exploring new things and new patterns and what's emerging on the horizon. And I think there's an appeal kind of more broadly. We're all kind of becoming, there's all this push towards people becoming knowledge workers, you know, and we're all working remotely. And I think there's a monotony in the kind of older way of thinking and of doing it. Yeah, the world's a changing place. And I think being adaptive and, and, you know, we've been doing Kubernetes and containerization and, you know, the pieces, the ecosystem around it for a good few years now. But we can't say that over the next decade, Kubernetes will be the de facto, you know, mm. container orchestrator out there. And or even containers will be, you know, the de facto packaging for software. Things evolve. And I think the fun is inherently in, you know, experience that evolution firsthand. It's not always for everyone. And you can obviously see why enterprises, banks, telcos, insurers, they might want to stay a little bit behind the curve, but also leverage what's being built out there. And I think that also attracts a lot of skill. If you are a large enterprise, but have the sense of, we want to move with where technology is going. We want to leverage internet scale. We want to create ecosystems akin to FANG companies. We want to bring technologists on board and attract the best talent. Mm. You struggle to do that if everyone's sitting and writing COBOL on like an AS400 old mainframe. You know, you do that by saying, you know, we're building cloud-native ecosystems. We want observability. We want the second DevSecOps and, and all sorts of other cool things. So, so yeah, I think, it, I think that's where the fun is inherently. Is it delivering results though, Julian? So I think that's, it's a hard thing to gauge because we work across, I suppose, most large domestic enterprises and a few abroad. And business value is, again, an organizationally subjective thing. But what I think we've seen personally is there is a lot of flexibility. There is a lot of agility. There is a lot of mobility, kind of to Peter's point. Being able to scale horizontally when you want to launch a campaign, we work with telcos that do this all the time. You almost have a surety in being able to address unforeseen or unpreemptible demand. And yes, like there is absolute value in doing it. That's why Kubernetes came out of Google. They run containers in the orders of hundreds of thousands, I think millions. And they're leveraging that to deliver services that are literally the scale of the internet. And so there is inherent value there. And leveraging it, I suppose, is down to how you would implement it and the business services you're on top of it. 
Awesome. So Megan has asked a question, which in preparation, I think I asked about five times. What are the biggest mistakes organizations make during the transition to Kubernetes? And what's your advice on how to avoid them? Neil, I'm going to go to you because you've been quiet for a while and I enjoyed the way you answered this to me. Megan, just to put it in context, my question was more, is there hope for someone like me in this world? And can we migrate into this way? So you've put it a lot better. So what are the biggest mistakes companies make and what is a path that they can go in order to make this transition better? I would say the biggest mistake is not talking to LSD, but nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) So on a serious note, um, one of the things we've seen with new technology is it is uncertain and the guys want to get MVPs out, for example, say they just want to get the engine started. And what this means so an MVP for me is that minimum viable product. Yeah, they want to just okay, see, cool. like, you know, does the skateboard actually go forward? And a lot of times they get the skateboard going forward and they say, great, let's start throwing things on. And they don't put in the necessary guardrails, for example, and, and this is basic IT things. They will have the root password for the server or in Kubernetes case, they'll have the root or the primary key and they can access it. So anybody can do anything on the entire cluster. They don't put in quotas. They don't put in limit ranges. They don't put in these standard guardrails. And what ends up happening is you have a situation where a single tiny application can bring down an entire cluster. And in the event of we get the cloud now, you have horizontal scaling, which the guys just tick on the box, and it spins up all these containers because your pod is going crazy and just eating up all these resources. And at the end of the day, you, you might get a massive bill and you go, whoops, I'm sorry, I didn't do this. But these are like the basic things. So there are the typical principles that you can just follow. And a lot of times I tell people that this is complicated. You know, like do your research, like actually read up about it. And we're very fortunate in the world that we live in today. Lots of other smarter people have done this and they've written blogs about this and they've created things like Rancher to say, you don't have to go through the pain, use this thing. And a lot of the benefits that come with Rancho, they've put in these guardrails that you don't even know about. But yes, a lot of times people just go into it very quickly. And of course, now it's working. There's this pressure to get it into production. They copy and paste the mistake, and then they just put it forward and forward. Okay. So what would you say is the advice from a perspective of a new manager that's going down this line of containerization or Kubernetes? What would you say is a practical means for getting there? How would you advise them to not kick their toe when they're going into production? On a serious note, I would say speak to us. LSD, we are trying to help people. We know if I'm not going to say, give me your credit card before I answer your phone. I'm definitely going to talk to the guy. I'm not going to give him our secret source, but I'm going to say, think about this, think about that. So my advice would be speak to people who have done this before. And we are very, very fortunate. We got into Kubernetes on version 1.0, like early days when there was no documentation, when there was no forums, when there were no Slack channels. And we had to really hard slog it through this. And this stuff is difficult, Joe. Like, don't <laughs> don't um, count it short. Like, it's a really complicated thing. And if I were to do anything complicated, I would go to someone who's done this before. I'd get the advice of a sage guru who can at least give me some direction. That okay. being said... If they don't want to talk to me, I would say definitely look at offerings from places like Rancher and Susie that have done it before where they've said, look, we've taken the complexity apart. We've created things like RKE2, which is FIPS compliant, 
We've done a lot of the stuff that you're worried about and we've packaged it in a very easy to use fashion. So go see what's in the mainstream in terms of Kubernetes platforms and the big providers and go read what they have to say about it. Awesome. That's a great, I would, great Daniel, advice. Daniel, I would add to that and I would yes. say everything Neil's just said is absolutely right. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, right, I'm going to install Kubernetes and right, we're down the pub at three o'clock. It needs somebody who knows what they're doing to do it. And it, okay. somebody with experience and battle scars, LSD, I have the highest regard for. Other partners are available, but these lads know what they're doing. Okay. Peter, from your perspective in the UK and the Europe side, mm-hmm. are we seeing these big organizations taken on departmental level or are we seeing containerization, Kubernetes, even Rancher at a board level? Is it sub-strategy is supporting or is it on the strategy level now? That's a, a really good question. I would say, so I've been with Rancher about ooh, 18, uh, no, 20, 20 months now. And initially it was at that departmental level where people were dipping their toe, Daniel. I think, as I said earlier, through a strange, you know, the, the bizarre world that we're living in at the moment, it's utterly accelerated because people are, you know, if you take a retailer, well, their primary mode of business has been shut for however many months. And the, the agility and that requirement, it's just accelerating. And the proof points I'd use there are twofold. So firstly, we're sort of seeing much bigger deals because it is moving beyond that, right, I've dipped my toe, now I'm going across the organisation. And the other thing is the big global SIs are starting to get interested in this. And that's a sure sign that this is going mainstream. And it's, yeah. you know, because they're seeing the demand from the big, ugly yeah. Fortune 500s as well. Okay. So we're seeing more of this containerization as a strategy that's empowering agility across organizations. We're seeing more of the proliferation of the skills within organizations. We've got Julian and Neil that are offering an LSD trip, almost a DIY to get you there, paint by numbers. And I've got to get back to the journey. It is on your website that people should go and have a look at it, but your core beliefs are on fun human-centric, open everything, cloud-native, the freedom to operate. There is something in there which the big SIs will never get, which is neutrality. And what does neutrality mean for you from an underpinning open source and then talking around containerization as an enablement for core business? I think where we're kind of seeing things move and progress, if you look at you know the CNCF and the ecosystem that's is being built out underneath them and all the projects that are being adopted and matured underneath that banner, these are all effectively technologies that are pretty much agnostic of traditional proprietary technology, agnostic of public cloud providers or hyperscalers. And I think that that is kind of a very distinctive thing in that one of the almost design principles is avoiding lock-in per se. You're leveraging what's coming out of effectively a community. And sure, there are definitely vendors that are backing and providing support and guidance and and all all of the necessary around those ecosystems. But at the core of Kubernetes, there's an agnosticism there that enterprises can leverage to avoid having to have large SI lock-in and and to rely on these providers who are effectively there to kind of sell them the Kool-Aid and pretty much kind of tie them quite closely into a dependent relationship. 
So I do think that's almost an inherent nature of what I consider the cloud native ecosystem. Yes, I mean, it's a bit of a broad term because what does being cloud native mean? Does it mean you're running your critical business services in one of the, the large cloud providers? Not necessarily. It means you're, you're able to scale, you're elastic, you're leveraging automation to deploy, you're leveraging observability to view and see and understand. And you're pretty much able to engineer these systems in a very decorative way. And I think that's, for me, the value of the CNCF itself is it provides those, those technologies and it provides guidance around them. Okay. So Elastic talks to stretching and being able to grow on demand, but it also talks to being able to shrink on demand as well. Going down, Elastic goes both ways. Neil, do you think the cynicism of your average South African is what prevents people from diving into this? Because it almost sounds too good. It sounds like containers are a cure-all that's come out and being sold in the back of a wagon. How do you get around that from a management perspective when you're talking to another CIO, CTO at a big brand? How do you get them to see that this is the way to go? That's a common thing that we experience when we talk to clients. Everybody believes they're a Google or they're a Netflix where they require this incredible elastic capability when in reality they don't. I do know there's obviously some key companies, places like Take A Lot or Netflix when they get a new showing. But most of the time, people just want their service up. And the nice part about, again, Kubernetes and containers is you're working in they, they call them microservices for a reason. You're, walking, you're working with very, very small amounts of resources, which gives you the ability, especially in a cloud, to optimize that. You don't need to run very big workloads in case something happens. You can start off very, very small and build it so that if you suddenly do become popular, you can handle that. And the nice part about containers, and this is what I was mentioning earlier on, this is kind of built into the design. If you were to tell someone maybe 10 years ago, build this, in a way that maybe a million people will use it or maybe one person will use it. That's a very difficult thing to do. Wow. But in the world of microservices, that's part of the architecture. That's part of the design. It's like in there by default. And there's even fancy tools to make it so simple for you. You don't need to decide on the decision of when you can scale inside of Kubernetes, these things like horizontal pod order scalers. You can also tie this into external metrics. So a lot of this pain and this resistance has been taken away. So the guys can actually develop and then take advantage of all these things that are there by default. You've got this amazing toolbox that you can use. We've got a great question that came through from Simutira, which is how seamless is it to plug Kubernetes into other technologies like blockchain? And then the caveat for you, Peter, is how different is it from blockchain? Speaking about first principles, Kubernetes at the end of the day is a container orchestrator and it's effectively a means to reason, deploy and orchestrate distributed systems. There are primitives now going into Kubernetes, things like Kubevert. We've got kind of the Harvester project coming out of Rancher, which is pretty much a fully fledged hyper-converged infrastructure that you can bootstrap from the ground up. My point being, if you can build a container, you can run it on top of Kubernetes. So it's really the platform, the underlying substrate that allows for innovation on top, scale, flexibility, self-healing of your services. LSD, we actually just kind of linking that into blockchain. We are actually big pundits around crypto blockchain. And we actually use Kubernetes to do things like Ethereum staking, amongst other things. So absolutely, the Hyperledger stack and various other things 
pair incredibly well. That is not to say that you shouldn't evaluate your workload around whether it's a good containerization use case. There are certain things that definitely map nicely. A few years ago, you would say, is it stateless? Is there any kind of data that you need to tether to it? And if so, maybe don't put it in production. But I think that's kind of come full circle now. We have a lot of customers that are you know, leveraging operators and it's more and more common to see persistent workloads and backends and databases being containerized. So it really is becoming a mechanism to orchestrate around services, scale services, heal services, reports on services, and definitely pairs well to things like blockchain. But pretty much anything else that you can build a container around, you can deploy to Kubernetes. So guys, I want to ask you the three questions that I asked you to prepare before. And we're going to start with our vendor from a CISA perspective. What are you most excited from a technological release in the next six months on your side? And then Neil and, and Julian, what is your focus for the next quarter? So what are you working on with intent for the next quarter? And then folks who are not using SUSE Kubernetes but want to get into containerization, what one piece of advice would you give them before they go down this journey. So Peter, let's start with you from a vendor perspective, from the big daddy or the big mama, uh, what's coming from the chameleon in the next six months? Well, I've never been described as a big mama before, but I'll take that as a compliment, Daniel. Um, <laughs> the company, uh, not there, you. Yeah, well, true. I would say there's a project that the gents touched on earlier called Harvester, which is all around hyper-converged infrastructure, which is going to be really interesting because... I think a lot of companies are still feeling beholden to a company that begins with V and this sort of moves away from that and allows them to, the flexibility there. What am I working on at the moment? So I'm working on one, closing an expanded pipeline, but two, the certification and the accreditation of our partners across, well, globally at the moment, but LSD right at the front of that, I'd put them as our, you know, if you have the, have the, the triangle there, I'd put LSD right in that top top band of, of, our, awesome. of our best chums, shall we say. One piece of advice, speak to smart people if you're going to go down this route, and I'd put these lads right there. I know that's a bit of a cheesy answer, but it's what you're going to no. get from me, Daniel. Awesome. I really like that. And I think as you work in the channel and as anyone who's listening when you're evaluating partnerships, don't forget about the accreditation that they need to go through. I think it's pretty critical that we've got the pieces of paper, got the scars and have walked the journey. I've really enjoyed getting to know the LSD team and they keep referring back to how they've worked this over the years. It's paying dividends for the customers. So I quite like that. Neil, with the motorbike in the background, what are you working on for the next quarter? What are you most excited from a technological release perspective and a bit of advice? Yeah, so one of the exciting things that I like is not a single tool. It's more around the security. And we touched about that briefly. What we've seen now is people have now become comfortable with Kubernetes. Again, they've got the MVP going, their skateboards going. Now they want to start looking at the security aspect. And this isn't a world where it's one tool is going to solve the problem. It's actually quite complicated again. You have things like Notoriety, which does image signing. You have Claire, which does image scanning. You have Vault, which does sensitive data retention. And you have things like Stick that does code scanning. And all these pieces are now becoming more 
important and people are asking for it more. And also if we look at the CNCF landscape, a lot more of these projects are hitting a more mature phase, which is exciting to me because this is important. We're living in a world where mm. these workloads are going to be running in the cloud. They are going to be accessible to the whole world. You want to make sure that they are secure. So I'm excited about that because we've been talking to a lot of clients about this, but they're still in the entry phase of like, can we just get the thing working? Can we just be comfortable with it? Can we just operationalize it? Now they're starting to talk to us and say, okay, this has now gotten enough attention. The security guys now getting involved, which is great because this is something that we do need to solve. And it is a complicated thing. And I, as Jules said, we're techies at heart. So we like solving complicated things using technology. So the security aspect of Kubernetes and containers and cloud native is what excites me. What I am pushing my team to do is get certified on the CKA and the CKAD. So again, I said it early on that we are all in when it comes to Kubernetes. And mm. we've gotten to the point now, and if you personally know me, I'm not a huge fan of certifications, but I realize that it is important to a lot of people in the world. Yeah. So we are pushing our team heavily to get the CKA, the CKAD, and I think it's the CKS, which is the security side of it. So it means just bolstering my team so that we can then, again, use this experience and we can use our skills to go help other clients. Mm. Mm. And the last thing, and I agree with Peter, is I, I thought about this question is what's the best thing people can do? And again, the advice is talk to me. And the reason for that is, unfortunately, today, I can't give you a one-liner to make it easy. Mm. It's such a complicated subject. You know, it's saying, tell me about philosophy. I can't give you a one-liner. It's a, a big thing that requires a discussion. And again, not just us, there are people, there's lots and lots of people like us. And LSD isn't just me. We've got a whole bunch of guys who are way smarter than me that we can talk to and we can guide you and we can help you. So my advice to people getting into this, talk to us. We've been down this path. We know where you're going to go. And this is also why we created the LSD trip. We saw these patterns that people go through. They go through, okay, I've got containers. Now I want observability. Now I want security. Now I want API management. Now I want streaming of data. We've done all the hard work for you so you don't have to go and run into the wall. Talk to mm. us. We're here to help. Mm. Awesome. I really like that. That's solid. Speak to us. I think it's quite a new thing for a lot of people because open source is not a first place that we grow up in our careers. So there is a bit of hesitancy, cynicism, skeptical nature. But yeah, speak to the guys. I have. They spoke to me. So Julian, come on, yeah, your time. Yeah. yeah. So I think just in terms of things that are coming down the horizon that excite me and I know excite a lot of our team, it would be technologies that have been emergent for a while. Last time we went to KubeCon was 2019. And I think it was fairly centralized around operators, service mesh, and GetOps. <laughs> and that, that was kind of, those were the words de jour on everyone's lips. And we're starting to actually see that happen domestically now. Things like, you know, service meshes, which you kind of layer on top of Kubernetes, on the network layer primarily, and effectively allow you to look up the stack in terms of security on your east-west you know, channel, do things like mutual TLS, but also get more visibility of requests that are flowing through your containers. Complicated things to implement. We're seeing customers domestically now that have more interest in that. They want to get deeper insights. They want to start applying certain controls across those layers. So service mesh is definitely something that I think even at the enterprise level, we're going to start to see a lot more traction on. I mentioned GitOps, and, and that's, I think, really more of a pattern than anything else. You can kind of 
get there through different technologies. There's Ranch of Fleets. Uh, it actually originated from a company called Weave. And it's essentially this pattern or the notion of everything is decorative and everything across your entire environment can be described and stored in version control in Git. So, you know, stored in source and applied in a very kind of autonomous way across your estate. So you describe how you want your infrastructure environment to look and it's immediately applied. If you need to roll back, you go back to a previous commit and you can use things like merge requests or pull requests to kind of facilitate change control. So it's a whole new way of operating and it's very interesting. And I think to get there is tricky kind of coming from more, more standard IT management ways and change management. So very exciting to us as a kind of an emerging pattern. What I'm personally busy with is really kind of focusing on the, you know, the DevOps journey around our LSD automate solution and the integration, because at the end of the day, when you're building your code and bundling it into a container, that's really the start of everything. Then you've got to shoot it off into Kubernetes. Then you also need to wire in some form of observability, some security, et cetera, et cetera. So helping our customers to really mature, you know, DevSecOps practices and make it a bit more prescriptive because that's a whole world and ecosystem unto itself. And there are very, very many fast technologies out there that can be leveraged. And then the, the parting notes and something to think about as you go down the cloud native journey as an organization or as a startup or as an individual is think about the use case and think about the application. Certain things pair very well with distributed systems and microservices architectures, but there can also be very valid reasons why you might not need to have a distributed system. Also doesn't mean you can't use a monolithic architecture inside of something like Kubernetes. I do think kind of take it to first principles and think about the application architecture. Think about how services should communicate mm. and think about that whole ecosystem. Kubernetes at the end of the day is a, a kind of platform to accelerate your services. And your services at the end of the day are what provide value to your customers. So, you know, really the core and the starting foundation of it all is the application architecture. And, you know, the one thing that I feel like we can't stress enough is you never want to lift and shift to cloud, but we can say you never want to lift and shift into cloud native. Don't take hard to reason about monolithic, archaic, old services and think Kubernetes is going to make them cloud native. That just is a misnomer. It's awesome. all about the apps at the end of the day. Awesome. Thank you. I agree what Shikesh says, which is Julian, Neil, Peter, you guys rock with your explanations. From my side, I want to end actually off something off the LSD website, which is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. The introduction of containerization of a new management platform such as Ranch is not going to take away from the fact that we've got work to do as IT professionals for the organization. And we have to take them on the journey using the best tools we can. Look around, talk to the people in your community, attend webinars like this, make contact with the people who are offering it, and just enlighten yourself because you never know what amazing solutions you're missing unless you're diving in there. From my side, Daniel Robus as facilitator for Tech Central. I want to say it was an absolute privilege to be here today. I've learned so much over the last three weeks of prepping, and today was just the cherry on the top. Thank you for being awesome, awesome guests. To all our attendees, I hope you got as much value out of it as I did. Mm-hmm.